Welcome back to the latest installment of My Father Before Me. I'm your host, Brendan Sem. Joining me as usual is my father. How are you doing today, Dad? Yeah, hello. I'm doing good. Okay, super exciting. What uh, are we talking about to this week? Well, this week is another classic that I burned up on the... Well, this might have... I probably had a VHS on this one. This is The Labyrinth, or I guess just Labyrinth. Is it the? No, just Labyrinth from 1986. It's uh, another Jim Henson movie, so we're coming back from The Dark Crystal, starring David Bowie and Jennifer Conley. So we've got quite a, uh, a collection of actors here. Yes. So this movie, uh, I actually really like this one. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> this is really fun. I'm going to give this one an okay. Um, well, good. I actually really enjoyed it. There was obviously some, like, weird... <laughs> it could have done with a little bit more world building. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that you just sort of have to be like, yeah, that's how the universe works here, and just accept it, and some of that was weird. But overall, I think it was still a good film. Well, it was. And, you know, this is, you know, we did The Dark Crystal, right? And The Dark Crystal was Jim Henson wanting to do a fantasy type of thing, you know, wanting to do that whole... Uh, fantasy. Uh, he wanted to take the Muppets and 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 show his skills in other things, right? But uh, the Dark Crystal wasn't well received because of the well, the darkness of it and and the story and and it was I would call it more of a high fantasy, whereas this is more of a family is his attempt at maybe a family film. And you know when you got a family film like this, you don't necessarily worry about world building as much as you worry about. What's a fun next scene for the kids to watch? You know, I mean, that being said, there's obviously some other uh, things about it that maybe are a little disturbing for youngsters. But uh, uh, I think that it was his attempt to come back and try to make another attempt at a, um, you know, a puppet based uh, film that could be more of a family film. Uh, I think it was his if I if I if my notes are right, this was his last time directing. Uh, he was involved in some more films. Uh, one of your favorites uh, after this was that he uh, did the um, the animatronics in the suits for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. <laughs> yes, let's go. <laughs> so that was, uh, but I, and I believe that was about his last outing in the film industry. So, so I mean, he was on the downward slide, uh, probably getting out of things after, after this one. I don't know if this one killed him off or if uh, if he was just. Uh, uh, out of it by then but this was uh, uh one thing you can note too you talk about not much world building uh one of the writers was terry jones who is a monty python alum so uh right off the bat you get some of the concepts that we've seen in some other monty python movies where it's a a scene to scene kind of thing okay let's make this fun scene and then let's make this fun scene and then let's plug them all together right I mean, if you look at it, if you look at the scene to scene aspect of this movie, you can kind of see that, you know, in a way you would not necessarily um, worry about the order of things right now. Granted, some of the things happen more towards the middle of the labyrinth, but from the standpoint of the puzzle she has to solve and, and that sort of thing, the order doesn't necessarily matter because they weren't worried about that. They were just worried about, oh, here's a fun room in the labyrinth. You know, and that sort of thing, and and uh, I think that you see the the Monty Python um, 
hints to that or the, or the, or the style to that kind of thing. So, yeah, it definitely had that sort of feel when it came to like the different comedy aspects. Like when I remember when we were discussing this before the, the, uh, the guys underneath the paved stones who, when she would mark him, they would lift him up and like switch him around and like scream at her a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely felt you very bet. Monty Python-esque. The, the the beginning the the start of the labyrinth is kind of the most fun you know that little bit is just a little thing where you're starting to realize oh this ain't working for her this is working against her um, but not necessarily in a um, I don't want to say it's working against her specifically it's like this is an environment that uh, is not conducive to what she wants to do and it's just you know here's a little person who's minding the tiles and he doesn't like it when you draw on it <laughs> right not right. necessarily they're not out to get her necessarily to probably do it if for anybody but it is fun and of course the best uh the best scene uh, uh probably one of the more uh, iconic things is the little worm that's uh that she meets right at the beginning there when she's running around and can't find the way in and there's that little worm there that's talking to her uh, um, you know, that's something that a lot of people remember from this, uh, film and, cause it's the first inkling you get at this whole magicalness and, and how you got to look at things a different way and that kind of thing in order to see your way in. And it's kind of fun, but of course, then the rub on that is, uh, the, uh, uh, well, it's a good thing she didn't go that way. If she did, she might've gone straight towards the castle. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's a fun little, uh. Uh, it's, it's that mindset out there that, uh, that I think you can really see in that writing. So, yeah, for sure. Um, the, the actual building of the world is, is a little lacking, but the world itself feels like so expansive and, and realistic. It really feels like an actual, like the labyrinth is its own ecosystem and not just like a set with all these different characters. Definitely. You can tell they took care for set design. I mean, there's, there's lots of times throughout the um the set design that if you look there are hints of uh david bowie watching them not david bowie well the the uh goblin king <laughs> watching them right there's this one scene that's really cool and i can't remember i think it's right after they come out from underground and hoggle's kind of walking around and there's a, a an outcropping of rocks and you see these in art studios or art, art shows all the time where if you look at it right on in the perfect angle it's david bowie's face but as soon as you kind of get off angle it you know all it's just some rocks kind of kind of floating or, or mounted up in the air that that don't look like anything unless you're looking right on you know and stuff and there's also multiple scenes and i i think i saw uh, some youtube videos or something where they actually point out you know there's uh, anytime something bad happens uh, you can kind of see Jareth's face in there. Like, for example, the uh, when they're in the bog of stench, if you look up in the, I think it's up in the clouds or something like that, you can kind of see an image of his face. Or if you're looking in the, um, uh, when Hoggle's trying to climb a ladder and uh, one of the rungs breaks, if you look closely in the, in the uh, rock face behind it, you can see the Goblin King's face, you know, and stuff. So it's kind of fun that they did take that um, that idea of set design and, and making the set a character uh, to that kind of extreme. You know, the same concept artist for this is the one who was a concept artist uh, Jim Henson used for the Dark Crystal. And you can definitely see that in, in some of the characters, how they've got that kind of look, although obviously you really lightened it up a little bit. So <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, do you think, now this is obviously 
has no bearing on the actual film itself and it's just pure speculation do you think that the fact that um king jareth's face shows up places (laughs) this is gonna sound like a stupid question (laughs) indicative of like a a sort of mythology trope where the the labyrinth in the area itself is like an extension of him or do you think it's just him exerting his power to show up in these places i think you gotta think that yes he he is the labyrinth you know and stuff uh he is the the king of everything now david bowie in a couple of interviews he's kind of illustrated as like uh you know jareth doesn't really want to be the goblin king but he's making the most of it and stuff but uh i think you got to look at it and see it as um yes he's got these powers here that are integral to the um to the labyrinth and how it works and he can see he's always watching he can see around you you know there's the the little crystal ball rolling on the ground and and he pops up out of nowhere because he's watching all the time and can move around throughout the place it's definitely something of the uh the fact that he is the labyrinth you know or something like that um i get you yeah yeah it's a good point yeah i was trying to think of like a parallel uh, but I couldn't really think of a good one. The closest thing I could think of is like the jailer from <laughs> from uh, Shadowlands in World of Warcraft. But I don't know if that's necessarily the same situation. Well, I, I can't say I paid enough attention to know that for sure. But <laughs> that that would actually be a better example if it were the other thing, wherein like the labyrinth isn't necessarily an extension of the Goblin King, but he was put in this location and he just sort of oversees it and has power over it. I see. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I do think that, uh, you know, I mean, when you get to the point where his power includes the whole Escher-esque um, right. staircases and that sort of thing, and, and he can definitely control that in some way, um, you know, I, you got to wonder, you know, what what are they trying to say? Are they saying that he's a labyrinth? Or are they saying that uh, he's just a powerful person in the labyrinth? But I, I think you're right. I think it's more that he is... Uh, it's an extension of him, and he's got these abilities here, and he's just kind of overlording over all of it, I guess. Yeah. I, I want to go back to one thing you mentioned earlier. Um, you were talking about the the awesome, like, set design, and you can really tell, like, the amount of effort they put into, de- like, all aspects of de- the design, like the character design, the costume design. Like, uh, you mentioned this the last time about... um. Oh, I can't even remember his name. Hoggle's jacket. It's got like the f- the face on the back of it to sort of subliminally message to you that he's two-faced or or a coward, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they definitely took a lot of effort to try to you know, get these get the creatures wrapped around a certain uh um concept. You're right. You know, that is the main thing there. You know, you're talking about you're given an indication right off the bat that Hoggle is a two-faced person. Um, you know, Ludo is this big fluffy dude and, and that sort of thing. And it kind of is a reference back to where the wild things are, you know, and that sort of thing where you've got this big giant hairy guy who is, seems like he could be a, a menacing creature, but then he's the friendliest thing around, you know, and that kind of thing. So you're, you're doing that, um, to really just set up all of the different aspects to this, and and drive the the story in that way for sure you know and and of course it all is 
um, you know, useless things that are a subversion too, because you, when you first show up, Hoggle's there and he is spraying the pixies or the fairies or whatever they are with bug spray. Right. And you know, the, our immediate reaction is, oh, they're so cute and nice. Cause we're thinking Tinkerbell. Um, but of course the first thing that happens when she tries to care for one is it bites her, you know, and stuff. And, and it's one of those things where the whole time the set design, the character design, all of that is there just to, um, you know, throw her in a loop or, or subvert your thinking and make you think outside the box, you know, and that sort of thing. So it's definitely interesting the way they do that. And, you know, the, the amount of the effort that they took for creating the puppetry and stuff, like for example, the, um, the fire, the, no, I, I don't even know what they're called, but the fire guys, I think it was just the like, fire gang. It's something like that. Yeah. They had the, they had the fire song, which is always stuck in my head. <laughs> Um, which comes off slightly creepy in ways because, you know, they're talking about removing heads and stuff, but, uh, you know, that whole puppetry and the way that they did that, it was pretty amazing. I mean, they had people in black suits behind these puppets that were making them do all their dancing and moving and stuff, but the black suits were, uh, I think they were velvet and then the background was velvet and they had to, between takes, they had to have somebody go in and and vacuum off the velvet just to make sure that it was completely black so that then they could superimpose that with the, you know, the shot of the forest and stuff in the background. And it's, it's pretty amazing the way they did that. Um, you know, there's plenty of videos out on the internet that talk about it, but it's just the amount and the attention they went into that. When you go and look in the, um, the goblin King's, uh, lair, when he's hanging out there with all the goblins, I think they said there were, um, was it 46, 47 puppets in that scene? Jeez. And it required 50 some uh, uh, puppeteers behind the scene to control that. And of course, then you got David Bowie dancing around and a baby. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's, it was, it's quite a scene. And you can see it in those videos, those making of videos when they talk about it. When there's nobody there, the, th- the thing looks like Swiss cheese. There's holes everywhere where arms and, and stuff is up there to control uh, control people. And then, of course, there's there's little people in suits. Of course, we've got to have we, we have a lot of little people movies on our retrospectives here. Um, but they are and, and they're on strings, making them jump and bounce around, you know, and stuff. So, I mean, it's that whole area was huge. And, you know, just the set design besides the way that it looks is also the functionality of it is really impressive on how they can do that kind of thing. So. Oh yeah, it's it's so impressive. And I mean, we talked about this in relation to uh the Dark Crystal, but like I will be forever fascinated <laughs> by like any use of puppetry just because we're so inundated with like, you know, CGI nowadays that anything that is like practical or just a, an animatronic, you know, anything like that that can look that good is just going to instantly blow my mind. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about, um, you know, we all talked about it uh, back when The Force Awakens came out that, um, you know, it was really important to the the creators there. There were some things that weren't important to creators, but one of the things that was important to them was to try to do practical effects when possible to kind of bring back that feel of the, you know, A New Hope and the original Star Wars before it was tainted by computers. Um, so <laughs> it, it's definitely a feat. And when you see the mastery of this, especially, you know, that's the thing we think about it nowadays. And of course, 
maybe they're considering puppets, but then they get to the point where, well, you know, we could solve this with CGI easier and we can even make it look pretty realistic. And I, and of course, yeah, CGI looks great now, but it just doesn't, it, it does have a certain feel when you know that it's done uh, practically. I mean, I do have to say, you know, the, um, the one thing about this film that CGI is that owl in the title sequence that's yes. kind of flying around, which is just horrible. Uh, that, <laughs> yes, it was awesome. I agree. Oh, did you say horrible? Well, it's similar. Uh, but uh, I do have to say that that has the uh, what do I want to say? The notation, the the uh, the marks that it is the first attempt at a photorealistic CGI animal character in a feature film. Emphasis on the word attempt <laughs> in that, but. You know, it, it's just that, you know, they, like I said, they were on the cusp. So a lot of these movies that we talk about, and we talked about it with Last Starfighter and the CGI effects of that, you know, we're on the cusp of starting to get to that. Um, but we're still at the point where the, the first thought isn't how do we solve this with CGI? The first thought is, you know, how are we going to make this look right with the puppets? You know, how, how can we do this? And, and of course, there's a huge, not only uh, just character design, but set design and that sort of thing that has to revolve around that. I mean, if you look at uh, using Yoda in Empire Strikes Back, you know, of course, you're in a swamp, sure. But you have to think that every bit of that set is set up so that Frank Oz can be underneath the ground, right, to control Yoda, you know, and that kind of thing. So even not only the puppets themselves, but just the environment and you have to plan out how it moves. You know, it's it's an amazing feat of... Uh, cinematography Cin- cinema cinema yeah we'll call it that <laughs> yeah no that's actually a really good point like relating it to um like the advent of like uh computer generated imagery we're with these movies it's like we're <laughs> looking at like the final era before the information age and that's so crazy because ever since i've you know been able to really pay attention to movies they've all been you know as not realistic as possible and this it's like yeah you're right it's like how do we figure this out with what we have Mm -hmm. it's it's amazing you know i mean i don't know if you've had a chance i know i mentioned the um and any of our listeners i would i would encourage you i think it's like six episodes disney plus has the documentary on ilm and uh you know it's a little self-serving because it's disney doing a documentary on their their systems that they bought from lucas but um, you know, it's pretty amazing when when they talk about how they came up from the ground up just because they had to solve problems. That was the whole point of ILM was how do we solve this problem? How do we do this? And we talked about it with Willow. Um, you know, we talked about it with all kinds of movies just in the way that they had to do things. They had to make it work right. And that was why they were brought in because they could because they could figure out different ways of doing stuff. So. Uh, you know, one reference, you know, or or one uh, segue there is uh, another note on this movie is this was a George Lucas um, production. He was he was part of he was a producer on it. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So, I mean, there is a slight connection there. I'm surprised he hasn't wanted to go back. And I guess he wasn't enough of a producer to say he wants to go back <laughs> and ruin it with CGI. But um, but it also <laughs> it wasn't his only bomb of the year because this year. Well, I shouldn't say bomb, but. I don't think that this movie did well in the theaters. Uh, but uh, his other movie that he that came out this year was Howard the Duck. So, oh, great! He did, he did not have a great track record for the year. I'd like to. Uh, I mean, eventually we'll we'll discuss Howard the Duck. I think you watched that one. I I don't know, but I think I've seen parts of it, but not the whole thing. 
Okay. All right. Well, there's definitely one on the list. Now, I don't think Disney Plus has picked that one up yet, but we'll have to <laughs> Shocking. See. Yeah, maybe they'll sell that one to Stars too, or whatever. All these, all these Disney or uh, Marvel movies are going over to Stars. We'll have to see. What? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know when they're going, but like uh, the Spider-Man ones, uh, is that Stars or Showtime? I don't know. I don't. I, mean, have I think either, that's the so only that way, way to watch if you if you don't have. Uh, of course, you you bought uh, No Way Home, but uh, I think that's the only way to stream it right now is on Stars, but. Man, <laughs> that kind of sucks. I know. They got to get that figured out. Well, like, they got to iron out that deal. I, I'll never understand that. I would think that if you're Sony, I would think you would, even if you're Disney, I would think you would want the Spider-Man movies on there no matter what. They're so popular. Right. But if you're stars and you have the opportunity to talk to Sony, you have a you want to try to get those on there because that pulls something away from Disney. So... I wonder if that's what's going on. Yeah, but how many subscribers does Stars have? <laughs> uh, I would argue they probably have a few more because of this. <laughs> <laughs> what were we talking about before we started talking about Howard the Duck? I don't remember. Well, I was talking about George Lucas. Oh, you that's know, right. Because it was a Lucas show and stuff. But, I, you know, it was pretty much, I think we covered that one. One thing I'll point out, you know, we talked about the set design. Um, when you look in her bedroom, right? There's the there's the scene in her bedroom at the beginning, and then of course the scene when she's thinks she's in her bedroom, but she's in that junkyard. But there are a lot of things in there that are referencing the rest of the movie. You know, there's the I think there's a little stuffed Ludo. Um, there's some uh, little goblins, um, little stuffed you know toy goblins and stuff like that. So we're we're seeing that kind of thing in there, and it's kind of. Uh, you know, indicative of what's going on. Now, there's also some pictures of David Bowie, the actor, because her mom, her biological mom, you know, we didn't really talk about the whole wicked stepmother thing, but her biological mom was an actress. And there are, you know, clippings all over that she had, like in a scrapbook and stuff of her working with another actor who was David Bowie. Uh, so there is a reference there to kind of that that leads into the you know, is she imagining this kind of thing, right? Because we're seeing that reference there. Um, and there's some people that have said that this is a story of, you know, a, a coming of age kind of story for a young girl, right? And if she's looking at, and, you know, we talked about an overbearing male figure that is watching her all the time in the labyrinth, if she's trying to work out her feelings about an overbearing male figure or something like that. She's going to equate that to this person that was her, her mom's boyfriend maybe, or at least her mom's acting partner. So you, that gives us the idea or the inkling that maybe it is, you know, maybe something more to it or some kind of premonition, or even if the whole thing is a dream that she's, she's building this up, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's something it's a concept we've seen in other movies in fact we might even talk about it uh about in time bandits you know it's which is another um monty python alumni film so that concept is there where you're kind of setting up the scene for the whole movie right at the beginning or pointing out all these little things right right well i mean even further than that in the absolute beginning you know when we see um jennifer connelly like the opening scene essentially, where she's running in that park or whatever. She's clearly reading from 
uh, some sort of play, uh, which is literally the story, <laughs> the story of this movie, right? So much so that at in the climax of the movie, she is uh, reciting the the lines of the play. Um, and we, based off of that, and obviously the fact that her mom was an actress, she clearly has a, a let's say a flair, <laughs> a sort of um, inkling. Uh, towards the more thematic dramatic sides of things right so it makes sense that if she's sort of trying to work through these things that she would imagine this you know massive adventure to help her come to terms with uh the the coming of age or the, the overbearing male figure the the fact that because she's coming of age she has to be responsible in this case for you know her her younger brother yeah it's definitely a and you can see that that uh, interpretation of it and stuff. And I think that I kind of like the idea of the, you know, that it is a coming of age and her trying to, you know, young girl being scared of men and that sort of thing. Obviously, I've never been a young girl, so I can't uh, speak to that. But, um, you know, just the idea of um, not knowing what's in the future as a, a young lady who has to grow up or a young kid who has to grow up you can see that there's some fear there and this is her dealing with it, you know, from that, from that uh, standpoint. So it is interesting and an interesting way to look at it. And it, it you know, it hit, pr- it, it hits pretty hard when she's in the bedroom and, and that uh, the creepy old lady's telling her, Oh yeah, here's your toy. You want this, right. And here's your, you know, you want this, right. And, you know, and just trying to convince her to stay a child. Right. And, and it quite literally, she has to break out of that, that area and escape and grow up, you know, and, and I think that that's definitely a, a good interpretation of, of where they're going with this movie. I'd say that, uh, you know, the best thing about the movie, I think, um, is the first ending. I call it the first ending. The actual, what should have been the ending is when, you know, she's done with everything and back at the, at the, uh, in a room and, and there's, reflections in the mirror of hoggle saying you know we'll always be there and ludo and stuff and we'll always be there if you need us and at that point i think it should have ended right it should have been that she's moved past that she's moved on you know she's grown up a little bit and she's learned how to well then they kind of subvert that by having a dance party with all the uh the Muppets around all at once, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it, it is a weird ending that subverts that now. I mean, that could have just been the inkling to make sure that it is a, you know, a fun, fun ending for the, for the children's. But, um, you know, when you're talking about that storyline, that kind of subverts that, and that kind of ruins that, that interpretation, unless you're just looking at it as like, well, yeah, you can grow up, but you can also be a kid sometimes, you know, or something like that. Yeah, right. If we're running with that, the theory that it is a coming of age story and, and the end is when she matures, it's sort of another symbolic part of that is when she gives up her stuffed animal or whatever to her brother and says, this is yours now, right? It's her moving forward and uh, doing the opposite of, of like what you said the old lady was trying to get her to do <laughs> in the uh, the reflection of her room, right? She's letting go of these things and them being like, yeah, we're always here for you. You're right. It, <laughs> that is a much better ending. And then you sort of ruin it when you go back to the um, the childish, immature dance party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess there's uh, that's that's the uh, the. Uh... A child growing into adult, but then the adult saying, well, sometimes I want to have fun, I guess. 
Uh, let's see some other things. You know, we always like to talk about odd cameos or, or uh, references or anything like that. Well, there is, um, according to Brian Froud, who was the, um, I think he's the concept artist. Incidentally, his son is the little is little Toby. Um, what a terrible name! Cor- Sorry, cor- <laughs> Sorry, Brian. But well, you know, they, horrible they, choice. They, they had to keep his name too, so that he because he wasn't responding on the set until they used his actual name. So he, he couldn't even be directed. He's such a diva. Yes. Um, incidentally, I don't think he's done any other acting work either. But he's probably he probably uh, makes a few bucks on the uh, um, the con circuit though, signing autographs. <laughs> but anyways, he according to him, Brian Proud, who is the concept designer, he says that Kenny Baker who we've seen in a few movies as R2-D2, and, and uh, uh, he Fidget. was going to be Wicket <laughs> until he got sick. Uh, we see him in, uh, well, uh, aforementioned Time Bandits. Uh, he played the machine gun goblin. <laughs> Which, <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of fun that we got the one little uh, Kenny Baker connection. I don't know. Maybe we're going to have to do that for all of our films. What's the Kenny Baker connection? <laughs> the Kenny Baker oh. <laughs> connection, you might say. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Also, another little cameo that we don't notice is uh, one of the choreographers for the movie uh, is listed as Cheryl McFadden. Uh, she uh, appear- She's uncredited, but she's in one of the masked dancers in the ballroom scene, but she was a choreographer for the film. A uh, year after the movie, she was in Star Trek. Uh, her name uh, She used the name Gates McFadden. She was Dr. Crusher. So there we got a, a, a young uh, Dr. Crusher in there, I guess. Oh, <laughs> Who must have, I didn't. I knew she was, you know, obviously I've seen all the Star Trek Next Generation. I didn't know she started out as a choreographer and that she was a choreographer on this movie. But <laughs> Yeah, that, um, unfortunately, I'm not far enough into Star Trek to uh, fully appreciate that reference. I'm only uh, like halfway through the first season of the original series. Well, I, you I got started some time watching then. it again. <laughs> Um, well, and yeah, so we and we get Doctor Crusher, then we lose her, then we get her back. So there you go. You you've got some stuff to uh, to to learn. So. <laughs> um, yeah, there are actually a, you you there are quite a few connections <laughs> to other movies that we've done, or just other movies that we know. Um, Christopher Malcolm Malcolm, the father, played uh, somebody <laughs> in um in the Rogue Squadron and Empire Strikes Back. Um, uh. So helping tie down the uh, AT-ATs. There we go. I'll never call them at-ats. I think that just sounds stupid. I know that technically that's supposed to be it, but I'm not. I'm not going to say it. I don't think that's not their definition. I don't know. I, I like the AT-AT. It's more specific. It sounds more scientific and less stupid to me. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. It sounds less like a stutter. Um. Let's see. What else was there? Was another one. Uh, there we go. Malcolm Dixon, <laughs> another time bandits guy. Uh, he's oh. a goblin. Okay. Well, you know, and, and I think we discussed this when we were talking about Willow. I think there was a lot of, uh, there was a cachet of, uh, little people actors, you know, that were used as, uh, you know, as little people actors and also as Ewoks and also as goblins in the labyrinth. So maybe, <laughs> maybe George just brought his friends over. Uh, from being Ewoks, because like I mentioned earlier, that you know this probably was about the time they're doing the Ewok adventure movies we talked about. So, <laughs> right. So maybe there's a little something there too. You know, it's just uh, George brings all his little friends. But. Oh yes, according to IMDb, we also have Warwick Davis and Jack Purvis. Um, Jack Purvis from also Time Bandits. 
Yeah. And it looks like we also have someone who might be his wife by the name of Katie Purvis, <laughs> Purvis, <laughs> uh, who is evidently in Return of the Jedi. So there we go. <laughs> we have a, a nice collection of connections. Yeah. Well, you know, all of our movies, I guess, are all about the same. Maybe maybe there's a theme with our movies that is uh, um, really, uh, oh, yeah, there, there I see Christopher Malcolm. <laughs> well, he has IMDb photo as the is the rogue squad squadron guy. I think I remember that one. <laughs> yeah. We do tend to, you or you I say I don't pick the movies. You do tend to pick <laughs> a lot of movies with little people in them. I guess so. I get maybe I was too big so I went with that. <laughs> or maybe jealous. that was just the style of the days. I can't help it if that's the way that we roll. So <laughs> I mean, it's amazing we never had a Lord of the Rings in my era that was that was little people but <laughs> I'm sure that would have maybe been fantastic. At that time the, you know, at that time, maybe the Tolkien estate was was too uh, tightened up. Now, now they're selling everything off. But. <laughs> uh, speaking of books, uh, another thing I noticed uh, when I was looking things up is that this movie, uh, there was actually some legal concern because the movie uh, is kind of loosely based or, or has the same story of a book called outside over there, which was written and illustrated by a guy named Maurice Sendak. Um, the story follows a young Ida who must enter the fantastical world described as outside over there to find her baby sister. Who's been spirited away by some goblins. Oh. So you can see, you know, and it was released in 81. So there's a little bit of a either group think or uh outright, uh, inspiration we'll say <laughs> you know um, but so you know he no he he did do some sort of a i think there was some legal action and and you'll notice in the um in the the shots of her room there is actually a scene where you get a pretty clear image of where the wild things are um so it's definitely which was also his book i guess i should say so you know maybe there was some consolation prize there that we'll 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 post your book up there and as a reference <laughs> that's funny you know if that uh coincidence happened today people would say that it's evidence that we're in a simulation because oh, i go. i just heard so i was listening to a podcast the other day where they were talking about how in like 1898 or something there was a book written that uh mimics the exact events of the titanic sinking and they're like well there we go now we're in a simulation for sure well yeah i mean it's the do you see a black cat running by the door a couple times yeah <laughs> yeah it's a definitely. glitch we're definitely in the matrix <laughs> oh, uh let's see okay we haven't talked about the uh um the elephant in the room but of course david bowie is the main thing that people remember from this film you know the the music I can, you know, anytime anybody says a labyrinth, I've, I'm humming the songs because they are songs that get stuck. You know, they're David Bowie songs, right? But he definitely was at this stage in his career. He was trying to be more of a film person. He wanted to score films. He wanted to be more theatrical. His shows were more theatrical than, than just concerts at the time. So he's definitely getting into that stage and trying to get into the movie business a lot more. So getting into this, he, he tried to go um, whole hog to say as to get in there and really uh, he wrote the songs. I think that somebody else did the actual score for the movie, but he he wrote all the songs that were in there. I don't think they were. I don't think he picked them up. So, But it is, you know, it's definitely you can see where 
it is a, uh, you know, it's his way of, of trying to get into the movie industry to, to really get in there and do that. I know that uh, they were looking at other musicians at the time. I think instead of David Bowie, they were kind of thinking they could get Michael Jackson to do it. Um, <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that. I know. That's a whole different movie, I think. I don't know. <laughs> Um, yeah, so as far as the music goes, I thought it was it was great. Uh, it was good music, but just <laughs> I don't think the um, the rock vibe necessarily <laughs> matched the sort of fantasy world we had going here. No, and it was definitely you know it, it was a uh, David Bowie poppy and stuff, and then you know some of his songs that he sings were I don't he he was definitely trying to be theatrical. He was trying to be thematic with it. Uh, you can see what he's doing. Um, there's, there's some concern that uh, the uh, the beginning of the dance magic dance song where he is uh, saying some kind of lines about the power of voodoo, hoodoo. Oh, right. That's actually a direct pull from uh, some old movie. And now that I'm saying this, I can't remember it. But it's definitely. I mean, he pulled that out of there. Now it. To say that he stole it is one thing, but also, you know, we've got remixes and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I don't know if that's that line. It would be, I don't know if we could call that stealing as much as just using it. But, you know, that those lines, they just, they stick with you. And that song is one that I can't, I can't ever get out of my head anytime I think of this movie. So Yeah, it is certainly, it is certainly catchy. Uh, it is ultimately very repetitive. <laughs> it feels like all of the songs that David Bowie sings, there's really like, he wrote 10 lyrics. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then that was pretty much it. Well, he wrote hooks, you know, and, and that's what you say about that sometimes is it is more of a, I'm trying to get a catch going here, or I've got an idea, but I'm just going to run with it, you know, and that sort of thing. So, you know, the song that he's singing, or the song that's going on during the ball is, is kind of weird. <laughs> oh yeah that whole scene was was a little a little weird <laughs> yeah this is a it was a, certainly in this movie a, a weird amount of like sexually charged interactions between this <laughs> full-grown man and a child yeah and i think at the time what i i think at the time she was actually 14 supposed to be a 15 year old uh, so there is some uh, questionable material there, but you know who knows? Maybe, you know she, he would have waited till she was eighteen, probably. But yeah, David Bowie was not into any weird stuff. <laughs> well, I do know there's a sequel. There was a sequel planned at some point where uh, he, where she was going to become the Goblin King. I think. Oh. Yeah. For some reason, she was going to come over, come in, and take over. And I don't know if this is a. I don't know if this is actually a one of those comic book sequels or if it was the planned movie sequel or something like that. I remember hearing something about that. So the idea that she, you know, he has no power over her, but you know, I'm taking over kind of thing. Uh, I think that was where it was going or, or what the plans were at least. So, right. You know, um, what actually would be a, a better, a much better idea for a sequel is if they came back and, toby turned into the into the goblin king because mm. maybe you know jareth did some while he i mean he had him for quite a while <laughs> you know uh, he had him for quite a while in this dream so maybe he did some magic to slowly corrupt him maybe that's there why because the whole movie i felt like 
I felt weird. Like, this seems <laughs> like a lot of work for just one kid. So the whole time I was thinking, oh, maybe this is like a special kid. There we go. Because he oh, wants to turn him the... into the next Goblin King. So so we're missing the chosen one trope, huh? <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, I think, you know, I, I think we've... Uh... I think, again, this is another one that I grew up on. Um, I mean, it didn't do, I, you know, I normally mention the uh, grosses and stuff. I didn't really mention it before. So it was, uh, what's it say here? Oh, it doesn't say how much the budget was, but the gross on it opening weekend was only three and a half million, according to this. Um, domestic gross was uh, 12 million or something. And I, I would imagine world international is only 176,000. <laughs> they must, they must just not have good uh, international numbers for this. One. That's funny. Uh, um, but you know, so from that standpoint, I feel like, yeah, it, it did come off as somewhat of a bomb, but it's definitely grown as a cult popularity. And maybe because kids like me watched it, um, because it was all over the, uh, you know, the, the, um, HBOs and stuff when, when we were young, and like I mentioned before, streaming was a lot different back in those days. It, our streaming was to pull out that VHS and throw it in. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, this one definitely got a, a little extra life to it. And, you know, there's memes about David Bowie and his, and his piece <laughs> yeah. um, that have uh, pro- propelled this into, uh, you know, infamy and stuff. But uh, it's, definitely, uh, it's definitely a classic that I've watched as a kid a lot. Uh, burned it up uh, my sister would say the same um, we watched this one quite a bit uh, and it, and it's a, a formative formative uh, show for my childhood so yeah uh, so according to IMDB so take it with a grain of salt but the estimated budget that I'm seeing here is 25 million <laughs> so if well, the gross was 13 you know it's obviously a massive loss <laughs> yeah Which, I'm uh, afraid so now I'm curious you know over the years I guarantee it's made that back in sales uh, just from that standpoint I mean I don't know maybe I'm in a bubble uh, but every, you know, podcast and stuff that I listen to always references Labyrinth. There's been a lot of talk about it over the years. So I know it's it's hit some kind of a cult cult classic. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, this is a movie that even though um, I had never, like, really seen, I was v- well aware of it. <laughs> like, I was super familiar with it. And not just from, from you, which is the obvious source, but, like, from other people, like, it, that I went to school with. And uh, other people and like, you know, the, the generation above me in the millennials, it's it is definitely a cult classic. So it was super surprising to me to hear that it was just just bombed. <laughs> well, there were other options. I mean, we had Howard the Duck. <laughs> How could you compete with Howard the Duck? It's crazy talk. Well, do you have any uh, any final thoughts? I don't think so. I guess we shouldn't, uh, you know, one thing, you know, I always forget some things. And one thing we shouldn't not mention, we, sh- we should remember to mention or give credit to the gentleman who was the crystal ball expert. Um, because it, it wasn't David Bowie, I can tell you that. You can tell in those scenes and, and you can see special features where um, there's a dude standing behind. He was a magician. And I don't... Uh, Michael Motion was his name, but he's a juggler and musician, and he had to be standing behind David Bowie with his arm through there juggling those crystal balls without even watching it. 
um, there's some scenes, some behind the scenes things where you can see where David Bowie's doing his lines and all of a sudden the juggler drops a ball and he has to start over. It, it's pretty fun. Um, but I, I will say, you know, the other joke about this film is David Bowie's codpiece. Um, from what I've been told or what I've seen on some videos, the reason for the size of that is actually a protection thing because it was there uh, to because too many people were getting were had to be close, so he wanted extra protection down in that area. So that, <laughs> that's why it's so ample, I guess, is that uh, it wasn't supposed to be a weird uh, sexual costume design. It was supposed to be for protection. Um, so I, I guess if you're David Bowie, you can put that in your writer that you need extra um, junk protection. <laughs> well, well I filming. mean, like. Why wouldn't they give him like thicker pants? <laughs> like, well, he's wearing like a, a fitted sheet. <laughs> like it's super thin. That definitely, you know, I guess we're not costume designers. <laughs> I'm sure there's a reason for that. <laughs> oh man! But yeah, I did want to give reference because it is. I mean, that is a cool little thing they had, and a little, uh, um, you know, he used those crystal balls to. Uh, just some neat effects, you know, having it float through the air and then he grabs it. You know, it's just a neat, a neat way, a neat visual design of showing some kind of a fantastical power. And and the fact that it's really just a dude sitting there who can do all this juggling is kind of amazing. So we go back to our, you know, loving the craft of the puppets. Well, loving the craft of doing that practically is is pretty amazing too. So. Yeah, they definitely they did come back to that orb quite a few times during the movie. <laughs> Yes, they did. They definitely wanted to get their money's worth out of whatever they were paying that magician. Yeah, what did you say his name was? That was such a perfect stage name, like something motion. Um, yeah, Michael Motion, but it's M O S C H E N. So I mean, it's spelled different. So oh, so maybe that's his real name. It might be. <laughs> he was maybe born I'm for that position. It wrong, but it definitely worked. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I really like this movie. It was uh, super fun. This was probably. Of of the movies that we've seen, I would argue this is one of the better ones. Good. Definitely one of the most rewatchable. <laughs> it's definitely one and I'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy, you know, we talk about sharing these with Rosie, a uh, little grandbaby when she grows up. I think I'll I think I'll enjoy sharing this with her. I mean I tried to uh uh share it with uh some uh, older boys who hadn't seen it before and they weren't <laughs> overly interested, but I think maybe if we start younger it might be a little bit more fun. So. <laughs> You'll have to get her like a, a little stuffed Ludo as like a present. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think uh, on that lovely note, <laughs> we will. Uh, that's probably about it. Um, as always, you know, give this the give the podcast a five star review. I say like always. I've never said that before on this segment. Um, but yeah, do that. And we will catch you in two weeks. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>